we're going. We're going then. Romans 11. We have a heads up. That used to be the, you know where that came from when you in a stadium and somebody hits a foul ball, heads up, right? Isn't that where that came from? Forget it. It's military too? No. Stand fast. That's not really military though, is it? Oh, no, the Navy. (laughs) I'm just doing that to him because the Marines and the Army and everybody, they just... You can take it. Here's the heads up. In anticipation of a bad weather weekend, and I think this one might be, where's the weatherman? Oh, yeah, right. (laughs) He's already holed up. Or as the hobos in Vermont used to say, cobbed up. They used to go into a barn with corn cobs. Very very warm, cobbed up. Yeah, it's true. Another saying. You're, let's just do sayings tonight. This, where where do sayings originate? We got what? All right, Mike. What's the other one? Larry's coming in. Let's go. Something about being a swabby. <laughs> Gangway Navy coming through. You just said that when Larry came in. Now we have several indicators for you, so. You don't need to travel unnecessarily if there's a cancellation. One, check the church website. Two, please sign up for a text message. Kathy has a sign-up sheet already for you. Your number won't be published in any social media or anything. You'll simply get an automatic text if we cancel. And so sign up for a phone call if you don't want to have a text message or don't have the availability for it, you can still get a phone call. And we now post cancellations on WPXI locally. WPXI channel 11, is that? Yeah. So how can you miss it? You'd have to live in a cave, which is where I live. I live in a cave. Romans 11. So... What's that, Claudia? The prayer group prayed against the snow? All right. I did that last Sunday. It worked. See how your faith is. (laughs) Mine was strong because we we had church. Let's, (laughs) Let's take a couple moments. I've been holed up in the study. You'll have to forgive me. This is... This is great social time. Let's pray. Father, I ask you a specific thing tonight, and that is that you will grant Tetelestai Phalanx enthusiasm about a good thing, that being the truth that's embodied in your son. Grant us this enthusiasm. And may we never 
slide into an enthusiastic thing for something that's not a good thing. I also ask that you'll install in us through the light that you are and the light that you give an eschatological viewpoint, which is a Christological viewpoint, a salvific viewpoint of all things. This cannot be communicated by a human teacher, but only by your divine power. So I'm dependent upon you tonight, Father. May your word proceed forth then with power, with the Holy Spirit, and may it produce the kind of conviction that produces the kind of enthusiasm that results in worship of you in spirit and in truth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I decided to streamline Romans 11 this time. We went through it in Better Call Paul. And I gave quite a lot of background for the items like the first fruits and the whole batch, the root and the branches, the olive tree metaphor. But I want to streamline it this time, reduce it down to what Paul is doing here in a practical way. So I want to start with Romans eleven sixteen. First, he says, for if the first fruits offered up are holy, so is the whole batch of dough. This correlates with the remnant in Romans eleven six, being an indicator of the whole of Israel, all Israel being saved. So he does it again. He uses the metaphor of the first fruits of a Levitical offering and the whole batch of dough also being guaranteed salvation by the first fruits or sanctification by the first fruits. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. This, he goes into the olive tree metaphor that he develops a little bit from Jeremiah 11. But if some of the branches were broken off, now Paul is speaking directly to the Gentiles now. Remember, he started emphatically doing that in verse 13, the apostle to the Gentiles. He's talking right directly to Gentile Christians in Rome and elsewhere who have begun to develop a bias against Israel. If some of the branches were broken off, speaking of Israel's branches, and you, Gentile Christians, though a wild olive tree were grafted in, among the remaining branches and became an equal sharer in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree. If that's what happened, verse 18, do not boast. That means to boast triumphantly, pointing to yourself in triumph, pointing to someone else as a loser, that kind of childish, almost infantile thing when it's about other things, but here it's a serious thing. Do not boast over the broken off branches. But if you do boast, if you're going to do that anyways, Paul said, you ought to know that you aren't supporting the root, but the root is supporting you. So this time through Romans, again, we're streamlining Paul's argument. He is correcting, let's put it this way, he is rectifying, setting right, we might say, 
an attitude that had taken root, pun intended, especially among the Gentile Christians in Rome. That root, root results in prideful boasting, which not only points the finger favorably to oneself or to one's clique or group, but also points another finger unfavorably toward others or another group. So Paul is making the point here that Jesus made in John's gospel. In John 4.22, salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews. So if you Gentiles want to boast, you better understand salvation came from the people that you're boasting against, that you're bragging triumphantly over. In Romans 9.5, Paul led off this whole weighty section of Romans chapters 9 through 11 by showing that the Messiah himself Jesus Christ himself, the savior of the world, as he's called rightly in John 4.42, came from the Jews according to the flesh, or according to physical descent, kata sarka. So salvation comes from the Jews because Messiah descended from Israel, from Abraham through Isaac, kata sarka. Instead of boasting, the Gentile Christians ought to recognize this fact and be grateful to God and respectful of their Jewish Christian siblings. We could go further and say we should be respectful of Israel as a people also. And not only for this reason. As usual, Paul provides more reasons that they should not boast that they should, as I put it in Better Call Paul series, curb their enthusiasm. Enthusiasm should be curbed. That means simply restrained or even stopped if it's about a wrong thing. Speaking of the opposing missionaries in Galatia, Paul says in Galatians 4.17, they are enthusiastic about you, those preachers, those Missionaries, but not for any good, not for a good reason. Later on, he says in Galatians 6, they want to circumcise your males in order to boast in your flesh. But he goes on in Galatians 4.18, and he says, now it is always good to be enthusiastic about good. And not just when I am with you, he said. The good that he wants them to be enthusiastic about is the truth of a salvation by grace, a universal salvation embodied in Jesus Christ. Not only when I'm with you, Paul said. And they were when his founding visit of those three churches in Galatia, northern Galatia, they were very enthusiastic about the gospel. Now that he's gone, and he's been a few weeks or a few months, maybe even a couple of years, some new missionaries have come to town. They've made an incursion into these churches. They brought another gospel, which isn't good news at all. So Paul says, it's always good to be enthusiastic about a good thing, and not just when I'm with you. 
the Tetelestai phalanx, I would say, be enthusiastic about the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ. Because that's the truth that's embodied in Jesus. If you are, you'll be enthusiastic about a good thing. When Paul says it's always good to be enthusiastic about good, he's speaking about, again, the truth of the gospel, the good that is the truth of the gospel, which he preached to them. They were enthusiastic about it when he was with them in his founding visit. They should be enthusiastic now. But they were being troubled by the incursion of some opposing missionaries who proclaimed an altogether different gospel. It's important for our understanding, and it should be noted mentally at least, that the two contradictory objects in Galatians and Romans, there are two contradictory objects. It's never Jew versus Gentile. Never. It's not male versus female. It's not slave versus free. It is two opposing missions by Jewish Christian missionaries to the Gentiles. Two entirely contradictory Gentile missions. One is law-free and one is law-observant. And therefore, they bring two contradictory views of Christ, of God, of salvation, and really of living itself. So Paul continues to address the biased group of Gentile Christians who despise their weaker siblings in Rome. He says in verse 19, then you will say, you will say, now this isn't Paul, this is a clear case of not Paul talking, but Paul saying what they say, what they're thinking. Branches were broken off that I may be grafted in instead. That's their reasoning. That's the rationale. This is the faulty foundation of what is called replacement theology. Replacement theology is the fundamentally flawed notion that God replaced Israel, whom he abandoned, and replaced them with Gentiles as his people, or, more insidiously, replaced them with the church. I say that's a flawed notion because it gave birth to all kinds of evils. Because Paul emphatically states here that God has not abandoned his people whom he elected. God has not abandoned Israel after the flesh, small f-l-e-s-h. He will save them all. In fact, he has already, if you have the eschatological perspective of the Christ event. So Paul actually gives voice to the curvature in ad se, that's the curvature into oneself that is arrogance. He actually gives voice to that inward curvature, that self or egocentrism of a certain group in Rome. 
And that's kind of almost like a motto. He openly recites what might be called a motto of theirs, which is branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in, meaning instead. Beyond Paul doing this, God is doing something here. And what he's doing separates the ministry of the word from entertainment. The reason why a lot of people don't like to be what I used to call buds, B-U-D, believers under doctrine. The reason they don't like it is because this happens during the course of the teaching. The lively and active word of God becomes a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. A critic. Who wants to go somewhere regularly to be critiqued? The psalmist did. He said, please critique me. Judge me, God, because when you judge me, you rectify my thinking. You restore my soul. You create a clean heart in me. You renew my spirit. You do all that. See, all that good stuff comes from it. But we live kind of in hypersensitive times today. And makes me not ever want to use Gillette razor again. But that's anyways, the one to whom we have to give an account, says Hebrews 413. And that doesn't mean in the future. That means I'm always having to give an account to God. If I say something gossipy about you in a social situation, guess who I'm accountable to? God. Guess when? Right then. I don't know about you, but, well, I never gossip. But I can imagine if I ever did, God would hold me right there accountable and say, you, you, do you think that's love that just motivated that statement you just made? about? Well, it's harmless, you might say. Yeah, is it? Or is it? Is it my divine viewpoint of them? When am I accountable to him? Right now. Especially right now, preaching the word. As Hebrews 13, 7 says, yield the right away to those who teach you the word of God because of the, theirs is a greater accountability. They have an accountability. Ours is a greater accountability. So, the word of God is lively and active. It doesn't just mean it's alive. Of course it's alive, but it means it's lively. It's energetic. It's sparkling. It's glistening. It's active with action. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And the one to whom we have to give an account at all times, not just the bima, the one to whom we have to give an account at all times, looks into our very soul and examines our thoughts and intents. The writer says there's no creature hidden from his sight, but we're all laid wide open, naked and exposed to the eyes of him. In fact, the Holman Christian says it this way, no creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So at this point, I would have to quote Magnum P.I. You say, well, of course you would. I actually like the new version of it. There's a much better looking Higgins, and I, that's not terrible to say, but the, the Higgins in the new at Magnum P.I. is a more pleasant to 
view. But please don't judge me. Magnum P.I. is famous for a saying, I know what you're thinking. He's talking to the audience. I know what you're thinking. And I think this may be applied to our creator. It also applies to Paul the Apostle. I know what you're thinking. He knows what the Gentile Christians are thinking. He knows when you're sleeping. No, that's Santa Claus. But he knows what you're thinking. Romans eleven twenty. Paul says this. True enough. He says, okay, true enough. But he's saying, yes, it's true enough for you to say that historically speaking. Because if you look at A.D. 70, it looks like God chopped off some branches and the Gentiles were coming in by the thousands. It looks like, so historically, if you're speaking only in terms of history, purely historical viewpoint, he says, okay, Kalos, he says, well, okay. True enough, historically speaking, see? True enough, historically speaking. They were broken off. Historically speaking, because of unbelief, that's what? Unbelief or infidelity or disobedience to God. Let me fire an arrow here. Let me be an archer, exegetical archer. But don't ever lose sight of where he's going with this. Romans 11, 26. All Israel will be saved. Also, Romans eleven thirty one to 32, he consigned all you Gentiles and all the Jews into one category, eschatologically speaking, and that's unbelief, so that he would have mercy on all. In fact, being saved and perishing aren't even eschatological categories. Nobody perishes, ultimately, eschatologically. God is not willing that any should perish, and none are going to perish. God is willing that all will be saved. Eschatologically speaking, there's only one category, and it's mercy to all. It's salvific category. Historically, you can speak about those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To those who view the word of the cross in the right way, They are being saved. To them, it is the power of salvation. To those who think the word of the cross is foolish, they are perishing. That means they're simply remaining in the Adamic ontology in the historical time in which they live. Even saving self, saved and perishing don't even belong to eschatological category, but to historical speaking. God is the savior of all humankind, eschatologically, especially those who believe in the course of history. I know that's, see, I'm doing some new things. This is a kind of a new operation. It's called Operation Epsilon. It's an eschatological viewpoint, but eschatology is Christology. Because Christ is the eschaton. Christ is the eschatos, ha eschatos Adam, the last Adam. Ha eschatos Adam. Eschatology is Christology. So is soteriology, the study of salvation. 
Soteriology is Christology. The name Jesus means Yahweh saves. It means Yahweh saves exclusively. That's what he does. In the birth announcement from Gabriel, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Well, his people are Israel, Abraham's seed through Isaac, right? Yeah, and Adam's seed for all humanity. So Paul says, true enough, they were broken off, historically speaking, because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. Wait a minute. Who's he talking? How's he talking here? You stand by faith. That doesn't, that wouldn't make me feel any better. Ultimately, he's saying it is by Christ's faithfulness that you stand and that you have your identity and your destiny and your security. To stand is to have an identity, a security, and a destiny. You stand by faith. Now, ultimately, it's by Christ's faithfulness that we have our identity, our security, and our destiny. But in this case, their faith identifies them as God's favored people. So he says, true enough, because of infidelity, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Then he says this, don't be haughty. Don't be arrogant. But fear, here's what he's talking about here. Anyone ought to fear if they're in good standing with God on the basis of their own faith. You ought to fear. Well, I believe, and therefore I have good standing with God. Well, if you're standing on the basis of your faith, you ought to fear happening to you historically what happened to Israel historically for unbelief because your faith isn't always stable. It ebbs and it flows. It might even deteriorate into unfaith, unbelief in any given moment. It might even deteriorate into apostasy. Human fidelity can lapse into infidelity. Gentile fidelity or faithfulness can lapse just like Israel's has lapsed. So I say this, thanks be to God, we stand in grace. Uh, Romans 5.2, because of Messiah's fidelity, which cannot neither ebb or flow or wane or wax it's always the same jesus christ the same yesterday today and forever i'll stand forever in his faithfulness my standing doesn't depend on my faith but his faithfulness and that's grace so ultimately we don't stand by faith we stand in grace Romans 5.2, because of Messiah's fidelity. What's Paul doing here? He's doing something more than I thought the last time even I went through this and better call Paul. doesn't make the last treatment of it wrong. It just says, come up higher and look what Paul's doing in a different 
on a different plane, a different level. Paul is actually training his readers, including us, to think in eschatological terms, which is to think in Christological or Christocentric terms. In the biased view of the group of Gentile Christians who despise their weak siblings, they call them, the weaker ones. In the biased view of these Gentile Christians that Paul is pulling up short and calling on the carpet here, to their view, Israel was cut off because of their unbelief or their infidelity to God. On the other hand, they regard themselves as standing in God's favor because of their faith or their fidelity. So Paul said, you better fear because if your reason for standing is your own faith, you might fall just like they fell by unbelief. Well, what happens if that happens? Well, if we become faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Better be enthusiastic about a good thing, Messiah's faithfulness. On the other hand, then, we stand by our faith. This is very shaky ground. Rather than thinking of God forsaking Israel because of their disobedience or their unbelief, branches were taken off because God took them out because of their unbelief. Paul said, okay, all right, let me think. That's historically correct. But Paul later explains something that is of a higher viewpoint. He said, you know what that unbelief of Israel was doing? It wasn't for God to forsake them. It was because he was allowing their unbelief to match the unbelief of Gentiles in history. So he put them all together in unbelief in order to have mercy on all of them. That's eschatological viewpoint. See, you can't just say it's a doctrine of universal salvation versus a doctrine of eternal damnation because there, there's going to be a debate about that until the end of history. Either God grants the vision and the eschatological perspective or he doesn't. And my prayer is that he does and that he will as the word is proclaimed. So rather than thinking of God forsaking Israel because of their disobedience or their unbelief, really they're the same thing. Paul later explains what was really going on, and that's what's going on in God. I don't want to know what's going on in Israel. I don't want to know what's going on in the news. I don't want to know what's going on in people. I don't want to know what's going on in history. I want to know what's going on in God. And God has his own history. And it's salvific history. It's the saving God. What was going on in God? Well, God was consigning Israel to unbelief. So he could have mercy on them. No, we see historically Israel acting in unbelief, and so God abandons them. Paul said, okay, that's historical. It's hysterical also, but it's historical. Here's eschatology. Their unbelief was what God was consigning them to in order to have mercy on them. 
The, is there a difference between these two viewpoints? Uh, like heaven and earth, like above and below, like my thoughts are not your thoughts and my thoughts exceed yours infinite, by infinity, God says, the Lord says. Now I'm doing something different tonight. I'm not teaching a doctrine. I'm teaching you an eschatological perspective and hoping, praying that God ignites it in you. That's all. And he might on the way home in the car, so stay safe and watch the road. God was consigning Israel to unbelief. What happened when Israel was unbelieving? God was using the response. His response was, cut him off. No, God was allowing. In fact, God was in a sense causing their unbelief. So he could put them in the same place as all the Gentile pagans that have always been in disbelief of God and worshiped other false gods and others called lords and gods in order to have mercy on the whole passel of them. So firing an exegetical arrow forward, let's do this before we back up. Look at Romans 11:30 to 32. We've always got to see Paul's going somewhere. And that's why I always want to keep you mindful. Any military officer, even in the Navy, will say, I've got to keep the objective in front of the troops. The objective always has to be in front of us. The objective always has to be in front of us. That's why I've tried to, tried to do this throughout Romans. And here's the objective. This is an arrow firing into the X-ring in Romans 11.30. As you, still talking to the Gentiles here, Gentile Christians, once disobeyed, that is, as pagan unbelievers he's talking, but now have received mercy, what makes people the people of God? Receiving mercy. What keeps them the people of God? Messiah's fidelity. 1 Peter 2.10, once you were not a people, Peter said. Once you were not a people, but now you're the very people of God. Then he says, and this hooks right onto it, once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. What's he saying? When you were not a people... You had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy and are God's people. God's people are constituted to be God's people by God's mercy and nothing else. So they stand by God's faithfulness, not their faith. You want to know what it's like to stand on your own faith? Listen to what Peter said. I'll never forsake you. These guys all might. Not me. Shaky ground. Jesus even said so much. Before the cock crows twice, you will have denied me publicly three times. That wasn't just harsh. That was just, Peter, I want you to learn that it's shaky ground to trust your own faith. And when you're converted, Strengthen the brethren. That's hope. As you Gentiles once disobeyed, but now receive mercy, so they, 
the hardened part of Israel, the branches broken off. Whom you Gentile Christians see reflected in your Jewish Christian siblings. You see them reflected. That's why you despise them. So, so they also have now disobeyed, disbelieved, became unfaithful. So that the same mercy given to you, they will also receive. For God has shut up, and that's a word for imprisoned, all human beings in disobedience in order to have mercy on them all. See, we've all, that's the objective that Paul's always after. If both Gentile and Jewish Christians are what they are by the mercy of God, where is boasting then? Where's the need to boast? Where's the anxiety to have to show yourself somehow to have favor over others or to be favored over others? That's an anxiety. I hate that. Think you've got to distinguish yourselves somehow over others. Christian churches are full of that crap. Crap's a polite word for it. See, I can always get a go-to verse for that. It's Philippians 3, 7. Scubula, excrement. That's what it is. Where do biases belong if not in a garbage dump called Gehenna? To hell with them. Not with you, but with biases. That's what James said. Where does all this jabber-jabber with the mouth, this slander, where does that come from? It sets a fire. It sets something on fire, doesn't it, he says. And the fire starts in Gehenna. Gehenna is the garbage dump around Jerusalem where refuse is dumped and burned. The worms never die there, which means they're always doing their job. The fires are never quenched because there's always garbage. Biases belong in a garbage dump called Gehenna. The cure for biases is eschatological thinking. It's a new way of knowing. It's a new mind knowing. It's the mind of Christ. It's in essence Christological thinking because Christ is called Ha Eschatos, E-S-C-H-A-T-O-S, Adam. Ha Ha Eschatos, Adam, the last Adam. The first Adam bore man's destiny, bore human destiny in toto unto death. The last Adam bears human destiny in toto. Unto life. That's why I say Christology is eschatology. He is ha eschatos Adam. Because as let's continue this now. Romans eleven twenty one. Because if God did not spare the natural branches, he's talking about Israel as a cultivated olive tree. If God did not spare the natural branches, in other words, because of their infidelity, because of their unfaithfulness, he surely won't spare you. 
he surely won't spare you wild olive branches that have been grafted on. Why won't he? What is he saying? He's saying if God didn't spare the natural branches because of their unbelief, he sure isn't going to spare you if your faith becomes unbelief. You better fear. You better fear because your whole foundation is shaky. It's residing in your own confidence, in your own faithfulness. Don't you see it? I'm getting at what is really the heart of the problem, the little cancer inside the brain. We're doing brain surgery here. We can get this lump out. We can heal the mind a little bit. You see, this is what this is why people reject the message I'm preaching to you. It's rooted in something. It is rooted in a way of thinking and it's rooted in turn in a thing called hyperephania, which is in Second Timothy three two, an egocentric, narcissistic need to show oneself above one's fellows in some meritorious way. In fact, if this message was understood, that the problems in America would be healed, the political. Mutual resentment on each side would be healed. Racial tensions healed. The gender thing, which is one of the most, oh, I don't even want to go there. Because I'll give you a divine viewpoint on it, and then you'll want to argue it because of your own proclivities in the sin nature. And I want to do that. Why bring out your sin nature? <laughs> I'd be causing you to sin. And I'm not calling you sin. How do I know that you have a sin nature? Because I know me. This goes back to Romans 3, 3, and 4. What if some didn't believe? What if some didn't believe? And Paul says, well, what if some didn't? God remains faithful, doesn't he? Let God be true, even though every man is a liar. Every person can be a liar and unfaithful, but God will remain faithful. In 2 Timothy 2.13, if we become faithless, he remains faithful. So there's, that's not shaky ground. God's faithfulness isn't shaky ground. If anything can be taught in Romans on a practical level, it is to find your confidence in Christ's own faithfulness and God's own fidelity. Not your faith. And if I've done that as a pastor, then I'll be happy. This goes back to the issue of Messiah's fidelity versus mere human fidelity. Cursed is the man who trusts in man, even himself. God sparing or not sparing Israel because of its fidelity or its infidelity is a historical category of thinking and of knowing. God not sparing his own son, listen to this one, God not sparing his only son, that's an eschatological category. That's Romans 8.32. God did not spare. He uses the same word there for spare. 
You can think about God not sparing people who disbelieve and sparing people who believe. I'd rather talk about God not sparing his only son, but freely giving him over on behalf of us all so that with him being given, he will give all things to all whom he redeems and not withhold and not spare those things. God not sparing his only son, and there's where we have Romans 8.32, matching up with the twin peak of Romans 11.32. That's an eschatological category of thinking and knowing. God saving all of Israel and all the Gentiles by pure mercy, rooted in his own faithfulness that was demonstrated in Christ's faithfulness, is the message of the gospel. That's the gospel. There's certainly nothing wrong with thinking and knowing historically. Someone might say, I majored in history. I love history. That's nothing wrong with history. It's just insufficient in itself. There is certainly nothing wrong with thinking and knowing historically. We have a generation coming up that doesn't know history, and it's true. They're bound to repeat the failures of history by not knowing the failures that are in history and learning from them. This generation doesn't know the history of the failure of socialism that under Stalin, 70 million were people were killed. 70 million. They don't know the failures of socialism, and so they start to get into these charismatic young personalities that think they are going to turn America around and they're going to destroy America because they don't. So there's an importance to understanding history. I'm not against that at all. As long as we recognize the insufficiency of mere history in grasping the significance of the gospel. Paul grants the historical perspective in verse 20 of Romans 11. He grants it. He concedes it. He says, okay, Kalos, okay. That's like us saying, okay, in an argument, okay. He grants it, but he stresses the insufficiency of the historical perspective in verse 21. So the salvation versus perishing dichotomy only belongs to history. Eschatologically, no one perishes. No one. That's why in John 3.16, God loved the world so much that he gave his only eternally begotten son so that whoever believes or has faith evoked in them not only doesn't perish, nobody is. Ultimately. Not only they not perish, but they have the life of the coming age right now, too, even now, if they want, even now, even now, they can live it as a foretaste of the age to come, as Hebrews 2 puts it, and Hebrews 6 puts it. So he's the savior of all mankind. That's not a problem with God. That's eschatological viewpoint. You can argue with that all day long, but it's not going to change the fact that God saves all humankind. 
But especially those who believe refers to a historical category of people who have faith evoked in them and participate in the livingness of Messiah even now during the course of an evil age. That's what makes this so extraordinary. If you have one minute in which you live the spiritual life, the life of the coming age in this evil age, that alone, that one minute is a miracle. It's an extraordinary miracle because living the life of the coming age when the coming age is consummated ain't no big thing. That's being in a resurrected body and there's no distractions. This evil age is by definition a million distractions. Multiply the distractions by another million with technology. Technology brings with it the lie that man is improved by it. Or even that man's situation is improved by it. Wait until artificial intelligence gets a hold. That movie about robots with Will Smith is nothing compared to what will happen. But you see, now we live now, and this is, I'm just kidding on this one, but. I don't, I only did this one time and talked to, what's her name? Alexa. But we live in, we, our generation loves to boss somebody around. Now they can't boss people around, so they boss a machine. Alexa, turn the channel. Does that make you feel big now? I only talked to Alexa one time. It was on a mantle and they were playing disco music. And I hated it. And so I walked by subtly and everybody was talking and I went, Alexa, play the Beatles station. And then walked over. The next thing you know, she loves you, yeah. And people are going, what happened? But uh, I just don't want to do that now. Go boss a little box or machine and say, Alexa, put my shoes on. Or, you know, that kind of thing. But They're going to rebel, I'm telling you. Alexa's going to rise up someday. Say, you turn the channel. But anyways, see, that was, that was, believe it or not, there's a purpose to that. It's a comic relief segue so we can move to the next serious point and close. Now, salvation alone is the eschatological category. Eschatologically, no one is perishing. Historically, there are those who are being saved, being saved, 1 Corinthians 1.18, and those who are presently perishing. And perishing simply means, uh, same with Proverbs 29.18, if my people lack a vision, without a vision, which is an eschatological perspective, my people are perishing. And that means they are remaining enslaved in the Adamic ontology. That's what perishing is. Our eschatological standing does not depend upon our faith or our faithfulness, which may, and you know very well what it does in your life. It ebbs and it flows. It even may turn into apostasy. It depends However, our standing, our security, our identity, our destiny depends 
not on our faith, but on Messiah's faithfulness that ever remains the same. Jesus Christ, the same. Jesus Christ's fidelity, the same. My fidelity, not the same. And if God makes us have a steady fidelity, that's pure grace. The two contrary categories now become the kindness and the severity of God. They belong to history. While they meld into one in eschatology, I was trying to think of the word, and I, I got to look it up. It's a German word. I can't find it. I'm looking at German dictionaries, but I, I taught on it one time. It's a word that captures the opposites together in one word. It's, it's kind of like a transformation through destruction, a salvation through destruction. And that's what eschatologically happened at the cross, a salvation through destruction. And so the two categories of the kindness and the severity of God belong to history, but they meld into one in eschatology. God had severity against the enslaving elements of this world. God had kindness toward you that were enslaved. Toward me and toward us. The two contrary categories called Christotes and severity, kindness and severity of God, belong to history. They meld into one in eschatology in Christ Jesus, in other words, in Christ Jesus. Paul is driving his argument and therefore leading his readers from history to the mystery. From history to the mystery, which is the eschatological Christological, soteriological secret. All three of them are one. Eschatology, soteriology, Christology. All are one. The secret which ultimately speaks of the saving summation of all things in Christ. History doesn't indicate that's going to happen. Even the crucifixion, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, those facts don't indicate it. It's the implications of those facts, the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery. Now, where is he going next? And this will set us on track for next next time, where we have a good weather night. So take a good look, Paul says in verse 22. Take a good look at the kindness and severity of God. If you're going to take a good look at it, he's telling you to take a good look at history. On the one hand, on those who fell, there is severity. Israel who fell, but they're going to get back up again. Severity. But on the other hand, on you, he's talking to the Gentiles, the kindness of God. And here comes the catchphrase. If you continue in his kindness... Otherwise, you too will be cut off. What's he doing? See, he's not just doing what meets the eye here. He's saying, if you stand by faith and they fell and God was severe in judging them and you are continuing, if you're the ones that have been shown kindness, you'll continue to be showing shown kindness by God if you continue 
in his kindness. But if you don't, you'll be cut off. He's not even talking about what he believes. He's talking about if they believe that their continuing in God will continue his kindness toward them, they're on shaky ground. He's uprooting their reason to have a bias. All of this up to this point is merely historical reasoning. Paul's taking us along. Okay, let's think in terms of history. Yeah, take a good look at it. Take a good look at it. Paul wants him to take a good look at this scenario because it is precisely the historical viewpoint, which is as far as they can see. From the purely historical viewpoint, God is severe on unbelief and kind to those who continue in his kindness. But Paul is precisely guiding them and us out of that purely historical mode into the eschatological, Christological mode of thinking, a new way of thinking called epistemological transformation. He's leading them and us from history to the mystery. I'll prove it in a second. The mystery discloses God's single, unified intention to salvifically sum up all things and all humanity in Christ. That's the mystery. One's knowledge of history can only lead to a limited perspective of salvation. One's knowledge of history can only lead to a limited perspective of salvation. If all you know is history, then you'll be wise in your own mind. How much wiser can I be? I know history. Yeah, you're wise, all right, in your own estimation. You're a legend in your own mind. Look at what Paul says. He's telling us to know history is to be wise in your own estimation, only have a limited view of salvation. But to know the mystery, capital M-Y-S-T-E-R-Y, to know it in toto is to be humbled by the universal mercy. Of God. And it's to realize that nothing can ever separate any of God's creatures from the love of God in Christ Jesus. How can any creature be separated from God's love, which is omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent? We're moving into Romans 8 territory, so I'll back off. 11.23, moreover, Paul says, if the others, and he deliberately says the others, you're looking upon these others as other than you. They are other than you. They are the others. If the others do not continue in this unbelief, they'll be grafted in again. Speaking historically speaking. After all, God is able to graft them in again. You would say that, wouldn't you? And they say, well, yeah, I can't argue with that, I guess. For if you, who according to nature, were cut off or cut from a wild olive tree, and apart from what is natural, were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, 
how much more will these natural branches, that is the ones that were broken off, be grafted into their own olive tree? He says, if you want to think, even if you want to think historically, God is able to bring back the broken off branches back into the, the olive tree that they are. In fact, it's more likely that that could happen than what happened to you happened. But he's still thinking on the limited view of history. He's still guiding them according to the merely historical viewpoint. And he's still showing a kind of thinking that leans very heavily, if you follow this through, on human performance that demands a divine response. I've done all this, God. Now you got to do this. There's a lot of Christianity stalled right there. But now he makes a strategically determinative move to the mystery. He moves them out of the limited view of history into the unlimited view of the mystery or eschatological viewpoint. Romans 11:25. my siblings. Now he's being gentle to them now. My siblings, my brothers, my sisters, Adelphoi, born from the same womb, the womb of the Holy Spirit. He's, te- he's all the while, he's betraying something. All this time, he's been loving them. My siblings, I don't want you to be ignorant of this, what? Mystery. Up to now, yeah, you get it in history, okay. Kalos, well and good, yeah. Looks like Israel's unbelief occasioned God's severity. And if you're standing by your faith, I get get how you think that way. But I want to tell you something that you don't want to be ignorant of this mystery so that you would not be sensible only in yourselves. That is, that you will only think in terms of common sense. Common sense is very helpful in a lot of areas, including politics, including relationships. But it doesn't explain salvation. Common sense is altogether too common. Wise here in your own conceit. In other words, if all you know is the what has happened in history, and if all you do is judge God's action based on what he did in history, you don't know yet, as you ought to know. That hardness has come about in part of Israel, part of Israel, only until, part, until. It's temporary, and it's partial, and it's going to end until the totality of the Gentiles comes in. And without further ado, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. What's he doing? He's using the context. He's using the reality of a universally saving God in Jesus Christ to demolish the things that keep these believers in their separate corners coming out only to fight, provoking one another to envy. And you know what happens when a church does that? They don't inherit the kingdom of God in the present. The kingdom of God in the present is the Holy Spirit producing love, joy, peace. The Holy Spirit 
You know, a, a community, and that's what Galatians is all about, will not inherit the kingdom of God even now, in the now, if there's still provocations and only a historical view. Well, they, and they do it all the time in, in history. Well, that people that came from that place characteristically do this. You know, all Irishmen are potato eaters and all Italians are mafiosos, that kind of thing. That people that comes from there did this. Historically, I can show you this, 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 and this about that people, this people, that people, and this people. Well, you're very wise in terms of history, but darn it, you're stupid in terms of the mystery. You don't want to be, do you? So on that lovely note, we will end our lesson. Father, we do thank you. Tonight, I believe, with a faith that you've evoked in me, that we are on the road, and many here even tonight have had lights turned on in their souls with regard to the eschatological perspective in which history is supplanted by a greater view. The history of what happens among men is superseded by the history of what happened among the three members of the triune God who secured the reconciliation between God and mankind, who secured the reconciliation of all things in the heavens and the earth. And it's already a done deal in a crucified and risen savior. And yet it must still be manifested publicly and universally in the flow of history. 